0: Hello and welcome to episode 164 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome Jimmy Laval from the Album Leaf. Jimmy and I met up in Los Angeles to talk about his early days from the 90s in San Diego being exposed to DIY and screamo, to touring with bands like the Get Up Kids, Piebald. And we also dive into his Album Leaf project, how he met Sigur sub-pop records days, and how he's now busy with film scoring. It all makes sense on how each one happened because he put himself out there and was involved. Jimmy's story is one of constant creativity and making connections. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters out there. You make this podcast happen. Any amount is greatly appreciated as it goes toward the upkeep of the websites, podcast servers, and distribution. If you want to help out, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. This is episode one hundred and sixty-four of the Washington Female Podcast with Jimmy Laval from the Outleaf.
2: Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, San Diego. That's where you were born, born and raised. And so, getting into music, what were some of the first spots that? you were seeing music or getting exposed to music early on?
1: Um, My high school years basically was when I started kind of discovering um, just, you know, non-mainstream music, just the the underground, kind of underground world. Back then in San Diego, there was spaces. uh, Che Cafe obviously was um, one of the most um, famous spaces and still exists, actually. Um, And a friend of mine actually just played there a couple weeks ago, which is so i it's kind of nice to see that it's still alive and going. Um, and then back then too was um, Tim Mays, who was kind of a like prolific, uh, just mainstay promoter in San Diego. He has a venue called the Casbah, but the Casbah is a bar, so obviously I was you know underage. But he also promoted just a, many events throughout the San Diego, just in different places. There was a I, I specifically remember seeing this um, concert. That's, uh, it was called Mayday, and it was at the starlight bowl in Balboa park. And I've never seen or heard of another show ever to happen there again. Um, and it's this old, just like, you know, amphitheater out outdoor. And, um, it's the first time I saw like three mile pilot, which was a huge kind of influence for me back in, and, uh, those days and just kind of discovering, and it was like a San Diego scene showcase, you know, um, a miniature and like drip tank and uh, chinchilla. Um, oh, right. Like all, there's like that that era of San Diego, which is like, like 93, 94 kind of era. Um, You're still in high school. i was still in high school. I graduated in 96. Um, but throughout that time period, too, it seems like there was a bunch of like venues popping up. Um, there was this place called Cafe Chabalaba, um, which. In my mind, I feel like in the time period, I thought these places were just so big, or just like you know. But they're in in reality, they were just you know little kind of coffee shops and stuff like that. Like there was also shows at Espresso Roma at SDSU, um, which was also near the old. The there was used to be two off the records, and off the record was kind of like the, the 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 really kind of the Mm go-to record store. Um, You know, all vinyl and all that kind of stuff. I bought my first record from Off the Record in Hillcrest. They used to have in-stores. I saw Jehu do an in-store there. I saw Unwound do an in-store there. Um, Nirvana did an in-store there. Um, You saw it? I didn't see it. I did see Nirvana at the San Diego uh, Sports Arena. What year? Um, It was 93.
0: So So you were like a freshman?
1: uh, Yeah, it was the In Utero Tour. Wow. That's when I saw it. Um, Lucy's fur coat, and I think uh, somebody else opened for what I think I want to say it, it might have been Smashing Pumpkins, but I did see Smashing Pumpkins at the at the uh, Delmar Fairgrounds, and this around the same time period. But
2: what's crazy? I just finished yeah. reading *Serving the Servants*, which uh-huh. is Danny Goldberg's book about Nirvana, and what's, it's more of a music business side. And it's got these—he's talking about these conversations with Kurt, where he's literally concerned about what the punk kids will think. Yeah, and we were talking you know, right. just a little bit earlier, just sort of like that mentality. Like I feel like right. he was still this giant artist, but he still was like, well, yes. "What are the punk kids going to totally, think?" Totally. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> how did the How did that start? Then was what was it? What was appealing about that scene or just that ethic that connected you versus just throwing the radio on? I th- I feel like it was just it, it it was just like it was like an onion, really, because it was like you couldn't I, find I, it all
1: first, yeah you couldn't find it all and I felt like my first I think my first introduction to that world was Fugazi and then from Fugazi it just kind of like I had a girlfriend in high school who was obsessed with Fugazi and <laughs> you, see, you. you would see that sticker and their logo like everywhere all the time you know it was like that sticker Right, like, everybody had that thing um, and that kind of peeled off yeah it was just like Fugazi and I bought I remember the first record I bought was in on the Killtaker like my first actual vinyl that I bought myself was in on the Kill Taker. And I think from there, I'm not sure how it happened, but like the just yeah, the layers of the onion just kept being peeled and I would just discover more things, find more things, meet friends and discover things from friends. Um because yeah, I mean as we like this was the mid nineties or early nineties and there was no internet, there was no anything. It was just literally record store, word of mouth, friends, shows, um going to a show and having no idea what you were gonna see. Um do you miss that? Definitely yeah um definitely uh i used to book shows at this place called soul kitchen in 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 east county um and my old band actually is that uh (laughs) my old band that i had with gabe serbian from the locust um pre we were like 15 um, was the swing kids this this, pre that wow Uh, this band called it was this band called steel tree, terrible, terrible band. Um, <laughs> and it was my first kind of real band, you know, it was like the first time I played bass and I, <clears throat> first time I like wrote songs and, and stuff like that. And, uh, we were into like, we were into like native nod and like Moss icon and like bands like that. <laughs> we um, were friends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like that, like whole, like kind of like, you know, mono talking, you know, um, also like still life, which, mm-hmm. was, uh, which was around to uh, that time period. Um, but our music didn't really reflect that. Our singer kind of did, but it was more like, you know, that was around the time of like Kerplunk, Green Day, Kerplunk. And that was like, you know, before that kind of, um, and around the time period that Dookie was just about to come out. Mm-hmm. Too. So there was a lot of like that kind of, um, those, that era of things being kind of pushed. Um, but that band was really bad. My, the point of this, this little tidbit story is the fact that, um, we played a show with Blink, we're now Blink One Eighty Two, and um, back then it was on a uh, the way you could be paid for shows was on a, a tally door tally right. basis a dollar. It still you know, happens. Like whoever you say, oh, who are you here to see? Dude, you get a mark, and that's your that's your dollar. Um, and Blink was really mad because we had brought out more people than they did,
2: <laughs> and uh, it's just kind of a
1: funny funny story like that. You know, there's a <laughs> that they were mad too. Like yeah. I'm sorry, or, or just like hey, you know, I don't know because they they we played. There's four bands. We played third. They played fourth. um It was also like our record release too. That we you had know, a lot going for you. Yeah, come on. Like we had two. We recorded these two songs or four songs. It's a hometown I, show. Yeah, for I blink that. It was a hometown show too. Because that's what right. they're from. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. So
2: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So that was like mid '90s. It was mid '90s. It was '94. 94 or 95, I think. But. <laughs>
2: did you know that, I mean, San Diego's a big city. I'm from a super small town, so yeah. like you, I couldn't, know I was mostly regional bands. Right. Like, did you still feel that? Did you feel connected? Like, did it feel that you were, when you started reading the magazines or starting to go to shows or seeing the distros and the, did you start to feel like, oh, wow, everybody's kind of coming through here or we've got something going on? I don't think I could put that together.
1: I think it was just kind of like I was in the experience and it was happening and I didn't think. You know, you didn't know anything else. I didn't know anything else, and I didn't, and I didn't feel like particularly lucky. Like, oh my god, all these bands are coming here, and I get to see them. I kind of just like I don't know what they would come, and I'd be like, oh cool, unwound's coming. That's amazing. I'm gonna go see them. You know, something like that, and <laughs> yeah. and or bands coming down from you know like Carp, and um, you know a lot of like Northwest bands that would come down and come through, um, and also, so that was kind of like the, my high school era, and in my senior year. Um, is when I kind of met and discovered the quote-unquote like San Diego hardcore scene. So my sophomore year or my junior year is when, I think is when Swing Kids started. And Swing Kids, we used to play at this place called Soul Kitchen that I booked. And we would play shows with them. And we kind of started to like slowly cross. And and Justin obviously was kind of like a, he was a super big influential Piece of that scene of that puzzle. Um, and predating him was Aaron Montang, who was a singer for Antioch Arrow. And Antioch Arrow started and Gravity Records started and all that kind of stuff happened. And that was like really, um, that's huge, huge, and huge for San Diego, you know, like heroin, um, the band heroin, um, which Aaron played drums for, um, and that was when the haircut started and the clothes and the high water pants and like the, the look, you know, was like all of that kind of originated back then. And we all just like just ate it up like candy, you know, like everybody just started like cutting their haircuts. And we were called Spock Rockers and like all this kind of stuff, you know, um, I wanted that pants term. And like, yeah, we hated the term. Or I think we started to embrace it, too. There's photos. Actually, Justin just sent me a because fo- we used to go to... Um, olin mills which was like a photo and like take we would take like these all these funny photos with like the you know the proper backdrop right like the library books or the like yeah yeah you know, all that kind of stuff and we have these series of photos with all of us as a crew we would just go down and take these photos and it's kind of cool actually because it was before obviously iphones and you could just like snap a photo it's like we'd go and we get these like professional photos taken yeah and like have them in like a you know physical form and in a photo album or up on the wall in our hallway of our house or something like that that's you know? cool um and um so it was kind of a cool thing that used to happen back then and i got a photo from that time period with my haircut and it's just kind of funny
0: um
2: <laughs> jp
1: sent it to me not too long ago um but anyway so i discovered that like i remember seeing bands like that time period i never saw antioch arrow um but there was this there was a lot of house shows happening it was like click at um swing kids um, uh, unbroken um uh and that whole there's bands like julia uh these are kind of like smaller bands that never kind of didn't really get that far out of San Diego, but I think for a time period they did. Um, as far as word of mouth, at least, like maybe not touring, but um, word of mouth definitely spread. And like I felt like there was this, there was this band called Guyver One and um One and the locusts kind of started around the same time period and i remember seeing them at um che cafe and stuff like that and also they had this house in golden hill which is kind of a notorious house for the san diego history it's called golden hill house or the avocado 500 club is what it was called um it's on 24th and e and there was a lot of shows that used to happen in that um in that living room upstairs and my senior year I, I kind of met all those people. I spent my, my junior year watching all of these bands from afar and kind of like, uh, you know, idolizing or looking up to them. And were like, you playing you know, at the time? I was also playing. Gabe and I had a band together um, called... Well, it was Steel Tree, and then we turned into a band called Jedi Mind Trick. Um, Gabe was really, really into Star Wars. Think, so I'm <laughs> sure he still is. But um, <laughs> uh, And so we had this band called Jedi Mind Trick, and we started getting a little more traction in San Diego and started playing like being playing these shows with like swing kids and not just other, watching yeah not just watching we started like playing with these bands um there was also this warehouse called 14th and C um and it was like Crash Worship it was a guy from Crash Worship that ran that place and um this guy Skyler is really cool and just kind of embraced us and took us took our band on and would put us on a lot of bills that he would do at his warehouse um so we'd play with like their mob pilot um before I knew them and um, just like, that was kind of how we started to like, started to blend with these things. And, you know, and then my senior year, the guitar player for Guyver one, um, I don't know, met all those guys. They were looking for a new guitarist and my best friend, um, in in high school and I started playing guitar for Guyver one. Um, his name was Corey. And, um, around the same time, I think that, cause we were like, we were 17, um, the guys in the band were, they were all about two, three years older than us. And so we were like this new crop of kind of like, I don't know, I mean, I'll say I was a badass guitar player then. And that's kind of like where they were like, oh, like those guys are like, these guys are super talented. They're super badass. They're such, they're kids, you know, like this is rad. And um, so I was asked to join Locust on keyboards. Um, so I was the Locust's first keyboard player. And so at the same time, I was playing and the Locust had just done like a personnel change. The two, they used to have two singers, Dylan from struggle. And then this guy, um, uh, Dave, uh, who was kind of like the lower voice. And they Mm -hmm. used to do shows with like, we used to do shows like man is the bastard and bastard noise and all this, like that kind of world. Um, and there was a lot of influence as far as like the singing style of that, like kind of like high screaming and low juxtaposition, of like like the low rumble. Um, those two guys quit. And so, locust be- became a three piece and i filled it out as a fourth and keyboard player so for a time period i was just doing both gyver and locust um and then it started to get a little tricky and we would do a lot of house shows and it started to get a little tricky as far as like i think it was just egos um with the singer of the gyver one and and justin um they were roommates and they kind of you know there's a lot of just a lot of like underground competition going on Yeah. There. Um, who's
2: going to get on the show you're just like who's
1: cooler or i don't just like dumb stuff you know like really how how high your pants are yeah totally yeah (laughs) um it's it's probably not (laughs) not too far off but um but at any rate i guess backtracking just slightly was like i felt like i came up in this world and i was introduced to this kind of cool clubs like hipster world and you know my hair was the certain way my 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 pants my clothes my whatever um, and it was just, like, felt like I was just, like, too cool for school, right? Um, spring break of my senior year was my first tour, and I, and I, it was, a uh, Guyver One, and we, I remember asking my parents, because we were offered to play this show, the Michigan Fest, in Detroit, um, and I remember asking my parents, like, oh, can I do it? And, like, I don't know, I could, I'm a, I'm a father now, and I couldn't imagine, like, letting my son, like... <laughs> hop in a van with eight dudes like <laughs> go to Michigan where, yeah and like a man and just drive to Michigan and back in a week you know and they were like, cool and they were cool and they let me do it and it's also like a loft so there's eight of us in a van so it was like one bench two front seats and a loft so it was like constantly three people in a loft like, wow it was, it was and it was awesome it was super of course fun, it was you know? <laughs> yeah but I remember that tour being the most like kind of like eye-opening experience for me because I it was the first time I obviously I left um uh, California without my parents. I used to take a lot of road trips and stuff like that. Um, but, but um, yeah, by yourself, stuff like that. But, but by myself without my parents with like a crew of friends, nobody was over 20. Um, and we had these shows set up and it was the first kind of my first exposure of like, I remember playing, um, I think we actually played Eric from Christy front drives house on that tour in Colorado, in Colorado. Um, it would have been boulder put in boulder yeah yeah um and just like picking up the pieces along the way and doing all these house shows you know like i I remember meeting a really strong crew of hardcore kids in lincoln nebraska um and playing house shows there just like playing all these things and the thing was is like getting out of my stuck up too cool for school San Diego immediate scene and being exposed to all these people that kind of wore their hearts on their sleeves and the Midwest, like, just culture and, like, also, like, the Michigan Fest and, like, all of those people that were just, like, seeing bands that were, I mean, we, like, they they were the, they just were, that they were, like, emo, you know, like, that was, like, (laughs) as we don't want to say the word, but really, but it's, like, they were, like, the legit, like, you know, they would be playing shows and and playing and like crying on the like the singers crying and like everybody's everybody's bummed and stare. I don't know. It was just this kind of funny, like, whoa, this is insane. But also like such like vulnerability and honesty behind it at the same time that it was just like wait a minute. Euphoria. Yeah. It a was like bit. wait a minute, like here I am this like stuck up seventeen year old, like think I'm too cool for school kind of kind of kid me being exposed to this world of people that are just really open and really honest and really heartfelt and really warm and really caring and really genuine. And it was like, this is amazing. Like this, this scene is something I want to be a part of. This is like, this is incredible. Um, and we had that somewhat in our own thing, but it was a lot of like snobbery between us and just like, you know, stuff like that. But that was the tour that I met Christopher, um, Sprague who was, had a band called Constantine Sancati. um, and met him. They played the Detroit Fest. I met him that, and we kind of all like had this like,
2: Michigan Fest or Detroit Fest? It was two different
1: uh, Well, Michigan Fest, but it was, it was out, it was,
2: was it called Detroit? It was called the Detroit Fest. There was also a house. What year was that? that would have been 96. Yeah. They hadn't I'm come trying to remember cause I'm seeing there. the flyer right now. And I just remember right. like those, those were stacked lines up lineups. Yeah. I mean, when you
1: look back <laughs> at those things, it was like, and it was these just empty where like VFW halls kind of like things with like two stages or no stage. And it was just, or on the floor. Um, I remember there's, I've seen so many photos of those shows and it's like, if there was a stage, most bands opted to play on the floor. Anyhow. Right. Um, and, um, yeah, it was just, it was just, it was cool. Um, and the people I met during that time definitely were just, it was the kind of thing where it's just like they're open, honest, cool people. And it's like, man, this is just like, I felt like it was like a personality change for me. Something that was just really profound. Like for me to see that kind of like attitude and not feel so kind of bottled up. Work Um, together. Yeah. Hey, I'm doing this. What are you doing? Right. And, um, fast forward to the spring or to the summer after that, um, after I graduated high school, um, within two or three days later, I went on a a full U S tour, six weeks with Jenny piccolo locust. Um, and, um, same kind of thing, playing house shows all over the place, meeting friends, playing, um, this band called resin. What was his name? Jason, I forget what his name was, but those guys were really, cool. they're from Rapid City. And you be like, that was the thing. Like, Rapid City, South Dakota, like, how'd you something get exists this? there? Like, where, how did you even end up there? And I have a friend, still a good friend of mine who's from Rapid City that I met on that tour, he lives in New York. He's a photographer. And it's like, I'm still friends with him to wow. this day. You know, and I still have a lot of friends from that era that are just like, we could not see each other for, you know, almost a decade. And you're still like, kind of like, just all of those, that, that time period um, of, playing house shows, playing basements, playing VFW halls, playing makeshift art spaces, DIY spaces, then continuing on, you know, playing these stacked bills, like five, six bands and, you know, like things that, I could never even deal with these days, you know. (laughs) What are the set times? (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um just like just the looseness and just like not caring and then also like continuing and like staying sleeping on people's floors, like sleeping on the house, listen staying up with like local kids that you met that day, like listening to records and discovering new music and just like talking about bands and talking about this and talking about the scene, talking about politics, talking about um, you know, I don't know, like back then was also like an animal rights thing. Right. Just like huge, just a lot of like, a lot of different um, stuff that just was just really connecting, you know, with a lot of the, that kind of community and then creating friendships, creating pen pals, like writing letters back and forth and, and um, you know, things like that. So that kind of like exposure into different communities across the states like knowing that there was a community just like us in rapid city or just like us in like mississauga canada this guy i remember this guy gordon who was just like um i can't remember what he was but also all those festivals as you would play you would also meet like the local like distros and
2: exactly those those and they had their zines and and you open that up you're like oh well oh that's happening in maine
1: right exactly yeah (laughs) Cerberus Shoal was from from Maine. Right. And that was a band, too. You're like, what? You're like, they're from Portland, Maine. I was like, and that band was really, really awesome, prolific. I think they were like a
2: 12-piece or 8-piece or something wow. like that, too. Um, which was unheard of back then, too. Um, Growing up in Vermont, how- it would be Montreal. We'd, right. hear, you know, we'd hear from them what was going on in Canada, yeah. and then they would... It just... Uh, I don't know. It felt like there was like a... I don't know, like the like the horse was riding. like The information was sl- slower to get to places, but when it did, it seemed to have an impact yeah. that I don't know if you could quantify. Right. Like one issue of Maximum Rock and Roll right. at that one punk place. Yeah. I don't or know how attack. many kids picked that up. Yeah,
1: yeah. or and Heart st- Attack.
2: Or so Heart it, Attack. Yeah.
1: Which was like, that was my, the West, well, I guess Maximum Rock and Roll was, where were they from? Was it Chicago?
2: I don't remember, actually.
1: From. I mean, I remember Kim McClard and... and um, ebullition and heart attack and that whole he had his whole yeah.
2: world but even the yeah. regional ones of like no this is the one to get for right. this because they know Florida or they know totally. yeah, and that discovery part yeah, I mean your brain that first tour must and then especially that summer on the six week one I mean yeah. you're a sponge yeah. it doesn't everything is yeah. coming everything
1: in. I think everything for the next three years of that time period for me was, I was a sponge. It was just, everything was just, yeah. you know, I went to Europe for the first time in the, in 97, you know, like that was my first tour with Um, the locust, with the locust. Um, we did shows with final exit and refused, which, you know, like played in Umeå, Sweden. And, and then also discovered a world of people with our haircuts. It was kind of funny. <laughs> they were like super influenced by the San Diego scene. Yeah, you know, like all of our uh, our style and stuff. And um, and that was a huge tour for me too. Um, just the people I met and all just that whole that whole thing. Vic Simba. From, yeah, um, I love Vic. Yeah, she booked that tour for us. Like we flew, flew, landed in London. She picked us up at the airport. We drove, get out. We stayed at her dad, her dad's house in Leeds. Played our first show in Leeds <laughs> and she drove us the entire tour. Um, was, She was at Victory, right? She's at she was at
2: Revelation forever. forever. Yeah, she yeah, just Revelation. left. I know. Yeah. Like a year ago or maybe yeah, six months ago. I get ago. all those
1: labels confused Victory, yeah. Revelation, and all, all, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. They wasn't all my, wasn't my scene, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, but um, that's but yeah, really that cool. I mean, the, that was, I mean, you got the Crash Course. Yeah. Yeah. That was how. What was it feeling it, yeah. like? Did it feel like it was going somewhere? Did you think at that moment? Yes, you don't know now. Yeah. Like you knew now, but like, well, did you? I'm gonna do this. Like, I wanna, I wanna do X. I, yeah, I did. I mean, I didn't think it was,
1: I didn't think it was possible. I guess. And when I first went to Europe, it was like, yeah, it was just an. It was an. It was the same kind of thing. And also playing with like, that was where also where I first like discovered squats. You know, like just we would play in a lot of houses that were just squatted and like these huge spaces and also Europe, they like they just cook these massive meals and everybody's fed and everybody's happy and everywhere. Like it's just such a, it was such a rad community. Right. Like to to discover in Europe above the level of the States and States are really was warm too, but there was like a, there's, and there still is like a, a, an added level of warmth and just generosity and hospitality in Europe, um, that existed. Um, and then, uh, the talent of bands too. And like their sound was a little bit different too, cause they're European and, but there was a lot of bands that were kind of, you know, along the same lines of doing the same kind of music, but just like their sound was just that much different or like that much tighter, or like the tone of their amps or, you know, stuff like that or like where you would just kind of like grab on to a lot of things and just being, and it was just discovery of like seeing a really good band that you never heard of, you didn't hear their record, you didn't know what they sounded like, you would just see it right there in front of you, Standing on the floor in front of you, you know, I think nine times out of 10 never being able to hear vocals because everybody's just right. got their amps. they yeah, got two lamps yeah, too just loud. Just, everybody's just, you know, and it was, it was awesome. It was just really
2: awesome. It's not to say now isn't awesome because the way to be able to connect with people and, and talk and, uh, you know, be able to connect by the internet and, but I love that you're at that show and you're not, um, you don't have your phone. Like you're in the moment, you're there. There's a photo I have of a show yeah. of I was at, and every face is looking at the lead singer yeah, and i I don't know i made, my dad was a teacher, he taught i- you know he taught you need to look at someone when we talk yes. to him that that was important. I feel like you were in the moment, yes,
1: and that like, I, I sorry to do that, but like i I literally just got like tagged by um you know Jesse Keeler from um he was in DFA. No. Uh, from above 1979. And, I know the and, band. I don't and, yeah, remember now know he's him in yet. Mastercraft. Um, he does that. But basically, he just uh, tagged me in this photo of an old show from. Um, I th- I know you know Sean Scallon. Yes, remember him? the old old school photographer. Yes, um, yeah. Um, man, where is it? Um, there it is. So this is old photo. I think it was a show in. Um, it's Um, and then, yeah, he's, he's, he just tagged me as like photobomb and picked two. I think he tagged me in this. there. I'm like, I'm right.
2: Wow.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Terrible haircut. Terrible. Like, I don't even know. I have no idea. But like, that was, you know. And this band, I, they, this is the kind of thing, like, look at that. You can see it, like, right there. Like, oh. Yeah, they're you know, losing their minds. Feeling it, losing their minds, you know? And I remember Joe, he was such a performer, like, the singer for Constantine. And, like, you know, that's it was just... Crazy. And Ian was such a... Like, all of these guys, like, when they played a show, you were just like, whoa. Like, I've never seen a band with, like, that much emotion and that much, like, just letting it go and feeling it that much. Almost to a point where you kind of question it, You're like, well, that's a little maybe too much. But you're like, no, they're, like... They're legit. Like it's like legitimately being felt in a, in a way. I
2: saw this band called Frail from oh, yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah, of course, yeah. and they got, the kid that got grounded for playing the show in Burlington. He like talked about it. He's like, I'm being grounded when I get back, and mm-hmm. I wasn't supposed to do this tour. But then it was like the most epic, you know, thing. Right. Yeah, and people still talk about it. Yeah, and so I feel like the you're right. Like that the time period is like
1: that's a very real time period
2: right there. Like that's like the. That's that
1: time period, that moment. In but
2: time. we had it. We didn't have the internet, but right. we maybe had it. We maybe dialed up. We maybe yeah. had dial up, or we might have I didn't had dial
1: up until ninety nine, and it was AOL or Net Zero or something like yeah, that. Prodigy then, or yeah. something like
2: that. But it, the connection of finding something like that, or the being at the finding those people in a physical place, uh, I think had had a lot of weight. Yeah, and versus an email, right yeah totally or an Instagram friend yeah, cool. no offense to any of that stuff it's no. fantastic yeah the weight of the phone call yeah the phone call yeah talking to someone talking, hearing their yeah. voice hey I'm gonna I'm
1: so well let's go I'm coming through on you know looks like we can like book a show around this time period like what can you do something oh yeah let me call my let me, I'll get back to you or something like that and then like you or writing a letter all that kind of stuff you <laughs> the know. waiting yeah yeah it was okay yeah totally I didn't. You didn't need an immediate response, you know. Like when you get a text, it's like you almost like feel like oh, I got a good. I don't know. You know like yeah. Respond to this person or or whatever it is, or an email. Oh, we need to let you know,
2: or like you know, it was just like oh, we're just waiting to hear back, you know. <laughs> but it's. I think that's a that's an interesting special time that you were in. That I think you were learning about the DIY. You, the it wasn't. I call it pre-bleed American a little bit because also Jimmy roller. Yeah, yeah, just because the the shit went to hell yeah and before that it was sort of this time when things weren't as fast yeah and maybe there was more time to contemplate or more time to think or sit with someone and i feel like uh that was that that was it right from that other day after
0: it was all different
2: and if and the other thing that's well that's interesting about
1: this is like so you know during that time period i went through another like i went through crimson curse i started playing with swing kids and we did like you know all these kinds of you know similar things and, and shows like that but then christopher from constantine zancati moved out to san diego um we'd started crimson curse together and he was my roommate and we had, we were like really just like the best of friends back then and um we started a band called tristezza and another guy jimmy laner um was in a band called Bev clone. He was from Saginaw. Um, Bev clone also was another band that was playing in the same circuit, Constantine's Bev clone, like that just Midwest Mm -hmm. scene. He moved out too. And so then we started this band, Tristeza. Um, And the same ethic of calling around and just booking your own shows and just being like, all right, let's go on tour. Okay, cool. And then you kind of collected your list of all the people that you knew in your notebook or whatever it was called everybody um booked yourself a tour got shows went out like if certain shows weren't happening you're like oh whatever we'll just make something happen you know and then you know or you would just drive overnight and like pull into a walmart parking lot in the morning and like fall asleep on the grass in the shade or something like you know a lot of like it's a photo of us um there was uh it was actually piebald jay june tristeza um i want to say the glory record too we were all on this tour together great tour yeah <laughs> <laughs> we were all on this tour together. there's a photo of us all crashed out on on a on a lawn outside of a parking wow. room, you know like just sleeping because we'd all i don't know
2: um but that's that's cool though because yeah. the, the the being able to have those experiences together but also different types of music yeah which you guys were well that was the thing that was so that, that's, that's kind of that what shift. i was getting into yeah i was kind of getting into the fact that like
1: so tristezo like we were not like any of those bands we were not at all um we went on that first we went on a tour but we knew a lot of those people like cut from the from the, they were from cool the michigan world, world yeah and um from just the hardcore world you yeah know, Just like those those fests like i remember there was an ohio fest there was a michigan fest there was a fest in philly there was a fest, you know all over the place um and I remember we did this one tour. We ended up playing in Memphis at this town, and this venue called Barristers. And we played with the band called the Get Up Kids. And that was the first, and we met them, and we had hit it off. And super good friends. Um, and not anything musically similar by any means. Yeah. You know? Um, Especially that year. Yeah. And... Um, they just like said hey you should come out and do some shows with us like just continue on the tour with us
2: wow so then we
1: just went out with them for a long time and um also that was like down to like houston and like and they were they were doghouse was like the the shit yeah and they were like blowing up and like we kind of got put in front of a lot of this a lot of these people because get up kids kind of took us out and took us under their wing and obviously we were a different style of music we were like you know arpeggiated guitar instrumental dreamy mellow you know we were not pop or that that scene yeah um, but the same thing like Jimmy Eat World were good friends of ours too so we'd play shows with them in both Phoenix and, and San Diego before they I think it was just around when Clarity came out and I don't think they had fully blown I mean Clarity
2: blew them up a <laughs> little bit in yeah. our scene but they got dropped so yeah. <laughs> but then there's like the next record
1: i think they yeah got, bleed
2: they, they got bigger yeah um, but that time too it was, it was that they were
1: doing period, those shows yeah they were doing shows same thing and like we did a lot of shows with them we did shows with glory record we did shows like austin was like a really big um why did it work i don't know i think it was just a sense of community and friends or i you know i think that's really what it came down to because i mean to be honest i'm not really i'm not at all a fan of that music or those the bands really um and i wasn't then it was just like about the like camaraderie and like the friendship and like kind of like you can put that aside you're like oh you know i'm not really but like, you were like, probably
2: great yeah. to hang out with yeah exactly. we
1: were just fun like we like were that's, like but they want thing. some yeah. oh
2: you're cool we like your music yeah. i just feel like there wasn't this package of you needed it to be the get up kids light or you needed yeah. to be a poor man's glory record Like, right. yeah no come out with us we're gonna dig it and yeah i that's when you go to a show and you don't know what's gonna happen and you do hear that yeah maybe there's a more openness. I felt that oh cool that band like I didn't know what frail sounded like right. before. It was just a word. Right. And then I'm like, oh wow, they sound like this that there was blew also my mind. something about that word too cuz you like, you would know frail like, a little oh, bit What is that
1: bad? What does that ba- You never know.
2: Good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's tough. You're right. That yeah. one's a little, probably bad example, but I think that's an interesting piece where you were in these harder bands, punk bands, oh, it's San Diego and then you shift and say I want to I yeah. want to make this type of music. What was what was the urge to so, make that type of instrumental arpeggio sort of stuff? So for, for me, I was always... Um,
1: so around that same time period is kind of when I discovered the Chicago scene. And that was a scene that... Chicago and Louisville. So like... Initial records. Rachel's... Um, uh, June of 44, Tortoise, obviously, um, and kind of th- everything that trickles down from Tortoise and all their projects. And, and, um, I can
2: see where this is going. Yeah.
1: And so <laughs> I kind of like discovered all of that. Um, and, um, at the same time as also listening to like Crossed Out and Rorschach and, you know, like Man is the Bastard and like, shopmaker there's like maximilian colby and like hoover right so there was kind of like you could see like the different
2: you had a jekyll and hyde
0: yeah a little bit
1: but also like there's all these bands in the across the middle there was so much there was there was such a juxtaposition of like the rachels to like crossed out um and you could kind of create this whole arc of bands that kind of just fit all the way like evenly through the middle of like oh this band's a little this band's this mellow and then a little bit harder a little bit harder a little bit harder and then this is like the extreme or whatever mm-hmm. um and there was so much music like that and and it was good it was all really good and like i was a fan of it all really um of i remember that Shotmaker record was one of my favorite records it was a Shotmaker maximilian colby split too which was amazing i don't even remember where those bands were from um there was a hoover lincoln record that split that was a two-sided coin i think was what it was called mm-hmm. that record like bloop there was all this this all of this music that i was discovering um and at the same time i mean i discovered angel hair a lot earlier but then angel hair turned into vss which was a little bit more just a slight more accessible you know mm-hmm. um they're still like really heavy and that was also the first band i saw with their own light show which i thought was really cool um and it was just sunny stepping on like i think probably power strips right <laughs> um but like also like andy from vss used um um uh he had a juno 60 and it was like kind of the basis of their whole sound And he would switch back and forth between the juno 60 and um and the bass um this is, i've totally gone off
2: no but this here, is but got, like, getting yeah. to the yeah i think that's the like i got i've got way into in, instrumental music like yeah. i loved tristezza like i loved Blackheart procession right. like gloria record right started having me dive into different things yeah. of like wow this could be heavy in its yeah in its other in, in another way yeah
1: and i guess well so to go back to like how i started i guess making mellow music um was even when i was in crimson curse locust and all that stuff i had a four track and i would just sit and make my own mellow stuff i would put a microphone out when it was raining and record that and then like write and just play and record something over you know so i was always kind of making like mellow Mm -hmm. stuff um and when christopher and i lived together we also started discovering uh nick drake um nick drake and red house painters those two those two particularly those two stand out in my memory of something that kind of like shifted our style of making music. Right. Um, And the easiest way is like we wrote four songs when we first started Tristezza and they were in drop D. Um, (laughs) And then from then on, we had this extremely weird tuning that we used, that I still use today, um, that, you know, can be dropped. It's a couple strings dropped here or there, but basically it kind of stemmed from, discovering that Nick Drake never played in standard tuning. Um, Mark Hoslick, who's Red House Painters, never played in standard tuning. Um, so we'd learned all these kinds of like different tunings and alternate things. And also like, just like putting your fingers in certain places and following the trajectory of the tuning of those strings kind of created this like new thing. And that's where we were like,
0: Whoa, this is cool. And that's how, <laughs> how we
1: did, you know, we played our first show in, um, in our house, in our, in our living room with, um, Joan of Arc.
2: Nice. Was a good friends. And the, I you, just interviewed so, Tim.
1: Yeah. Recently. <laughs> I was wondering if you, yeah, like I saw, I was wondering if you had Tim. Cause I saw yeah. Mike and yeah. Um, but, um, but anyhow, um, just that whole, like this, that also discovering bands like that, like Joan of Arc, they were doing kind of right. really cool, like different, you know, they weren't the get up kids. They weren't like Jimmy Eat worlds or they weren't like, you know, the things that were, there was just this whole other circuit of like indie, smaller 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 bands um playing in basements and playing in houses that were making really cool interesting music and that kind of was like and a whole different group of people yeah that too
2: yeah like look different like yeah in had different zines right
1: totally (laughs) totally but also like midwest and they still like wore their hearts on their sleeves and they were still like really open they were still super vulnerable they were still honest warm awesome people to be around you know um I don't know i mean i feel like i could go through like that's really city cool, by city though. and just, like finding but all i these... love
2: that you're saying the cities like yeah. i haven't had a conversation like there really was these other flavors like you're right the yeah. chicago thing like i i all of a sudden i see a different color yeah chicago, or like, like i
1: embraced like the first time i went to because then it was like martin Martin from los crudos and like we that's that's where we first stayed and, and we had that experience in reckless records and like playing like um some warehouses there and like you know, being involved in that scene with like Fireside Bowl and, um, Milai and, um, uh, God, I forget a lot of the other bands names back then, but then also a new era of bands from Chicago that I had a really big connection with was like, you know, like 90 day men. And, um, who's Rob, I'm still friends with, um, Brian too. I mean, I still like remember those guys wow. um, and, we did a split together when, we, when I was in Go Go Go. You know, like there's just like this whole—I don't know. There's just whole. Commu- there's always these amazing communities within each city that kind of like represent that city to me in a way, like of just like the, the people
2: you and know? then supportive. Yeah, and so supportive. I'm saying, oh, yeah. this is your new thing. Yeah. Cool, play this show. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, we'll play with. You. It doesn't yeah. need to be. Chugga-chugga hardcore. It doesn't right. need to be whatever it I remember,
1: is. um, Crimson Curse, we played at the Michigan Fest, and also Tristezza did. Like, basically, Crimson Curse, those guys flew out, which was also, like, a kind of a crazy <laughs> thing, like a mind-blowing thing. I think it was also right after J- JP had done Jerry Springer. Um, what did he go on again as? What did so he do? So, he went on, actually, for Jerry Springer. He, um, they just concocted this story. Um, my ex-girlfriend was actually involved in it, too. She was on it. Um, JP and Alicia were a couple in real life. Um, they also ran 3-1-G together and stuff like that. Um, and they basically concocted this, like, love triangle story. Or it turned into another, like, everybody. Everybody just cheating on each other with, uh, under the same roof, basically. Scott Byben was involved, too. I don't know if you know Scott Byben. No. He did Bloodlink records. Um, right. Philly and... Um, he yeah, put out so, the frail thing. Yeah. He put out totally frail th- th- yeah, Okay, wow. There's a lot of stuff, rad stuff on Bloodlink. Yeah. Link, but, um, um, uh but yeah like there was this whole like just kind of love
2: and it was all concocted it was all fake amazing well of course I mean TV's fake but yeah
1: (laughs) but it was like along the lines but they got this they got the flight out they got hotels they couldn't see each other it was this whole deal anyways I think I think it was the same time period that we did do that Michigan show. So it was Tristeza played and then the Crimson Curse guys came out and we also played a Crimson Curse. So one night we did Tristezza, the next night we did Crimson Curse. Same thing. We went to the Fireside Bowl, we played a Tristezza show, the next night we did a Crimson Curse show. Wow. So it was like the totally, and because Christopher and I were both Tristezza and Crimson Curse and it was this like juxtaposition of like kind of our old worlds and stuff. Yeah. It was really cool. Um,
2: but. Uh, what did it feel like looking out? Like was it the same kids? Was it, yeah, it was all the same kids yeah. too. Yeah. And they were all yeah i mean it was a thing
1: it was like the same kid everybody was just open accepting like fans music fans just fans of music you know fans of shows fans of live things happening right in front of you um yeah i don't know and it was pre i mean it wasn't like nowadays you go to see a show and it's all on a sound system it's all on a this there's like a you know there's a stage or there's some kind of separation or some kind of whatever but um even in rooms that had those stages and that kind of separation there's still a different feel of it you know it's like kids all over the stage and like everybody was invited up to just like gather around or play on the floor and like you know would barely use the sound system no i don't need a mic you know don't mic my amp just turn up you know stuff like that
2: so well it's great that it was accepted you know that change yeah where they could have been you know the dylan moment where it was like judas you know yeah heretic like but no you you were able to um transition into something that You loved and it's still connected. So Mm -hmm. I love that. I mean, the first two Tres records for me were how I fell asleep in New York when I first moved there. That's cool. Yeah. Because spine and sensory and dream signals or the seven. Okay, cool. Like those were like how I fell asleep because it wasn't that it fell asleep. It's just, it was, uh, it was so obviously I lived in a shitty apartment and crazy neighbors and like, but to be able to, uh, have that, I feel like the, I didn't think I could remember instrumental music because you always think of it as classical. There's and even, you're forced, I, I still, you know.
1: Yeah. I still think I still know people that are like, I don't know how you write instrumental music. Like they're just so torn they're like so connected to their yeah. lyric and like
2: the the, the, the structure, you know. Um, but now that it's like you listen to it enough, you see the loops, you see the where this is yeah. connected or what that note I've does. I've always written in
1: a verse chorus, verse chorus bridge, chorus. It still structured. feels like that. Like I always write like that. Yeah. It's instrumental, there might not be actual words, but I'm always that's my structure, like pretty much to this day i still do that you know it's still the same thing it's just that a melody the vocal is a different is an instrument and it's a different melody or something
2: and then did it feel like doing the tristezas stuff did it feel like did open again like oh wow i've got this whole like you said you're seeing the red house painters or you're seeing those other ways to write yeah it must have just been okay now we're gonna go in this world
0: yeah
1: it definitely to me felt i finally i felt like i felt like you know when I was in the Locust and when I was in Guyver and when I was in Crimson Curse and Swing Kids and all of that hardcore stuff, I still have a look this is like my first my first tattoo um <laughs> on my on that summer tour. I got this in the basement, you know. Of locust. course you did. Yeah. Loc- on the locust tour, so the locust inside my lip. Um <laughs> and also I was eighteen and told it was fade after five years. You know, here I am, forty one, it's still alive and kicking. But um anyhow. <laughs> um uh that time period was I was a teenager i was like i was it, i was just a sponge i was discovering this whole world I right. was like i'd play shows and my fingers would be bloody from like you know beating the shit out of my guitar when i was playing and like throwing myself and stage diving and jumping off bass drums and you know, playing shows naked and just doing all of these things that were just like you know a teenager like i'm just oh this i'm a teen, this is amazing you know and then i felt like okay cool i did that and i kind of then started to discover music that really spoke to me and like creating music that really spoke to me and kind of represented me as a person and what i wanted to do um so that was a kind of a yeah a nice like kind of just fulfilling moment to just start creating that you could do it yeah
2: it wasn't that you needed to rely on the hardcore band that made the money i know Money in yeah. quotes, but like... Money in money no quotes. Zero quotes. <laughs> <laughs> zero zero yeah. money, zero quotes. But just yeah. that idea that it wasn't relying on, I need to go do that one record or that one song, like, I can move on and do this, yeah. and it's this other world. Yeah. And I think the community part, I love that, that yeah. you I could still call have friends the same today. numbers yeah. for two different
1: bands. Yeah, I still have friends from that world, from the same, from like our hardcore days, that when I come through on tour, I... Those are the guys I call, the people I and call. And they're going to come out. And
2: they're going to come out. Yeah, we're still friends, you know? <laughs> it's like, it's great. It's great. And then you were... When did Album Leaf... Was that... That was during Tristezza, too. So I
1: started... Al- Album Leaf kind of was born because um, Tristezza was like my main band. Tristezza was like... After after all that hardcore... The, the hardcore world, Tristezza was my main band. And um, obviously, I am I played m- I, I play more than just guitar. Um, and during that time so i was always i was making my own music on four track um and I, I, a guy actually um a really big album fan who's become kind of a friend um through the years actually found my first tape that i released um in 98 and it's it's fine you know it's not great it's but it's but it's cool i am right. just like oh and it's all guitar based um and it was basically because when I was in Tristezza, everything that I would write for Tristezza that, I don't know, maybe didn't get used or something like that or any ideas that I would come up with um, that didn't get used kind of became leaf stuff. And also the the biggest piece of the puzzle of how leaf kind of came to be um, really goes back to me playing in Go, 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 Earhart, um, which I played drums for Go, 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 Earhart. And um, the way that that band operated... And I also learned a lot from those two guys, uh, Mike Vermillion and Ashish Vyas, um, Hash, who he's he's now plays based for Thievery Corporation. But back then, those oh, two wow. guys, um, those two guys, I can't remember how much older Mike was, but I, I want to say he's probably 10 years older than me. And 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 Hash was, he's probably six years older or something like that. Um, but those guys were from a completely different scene in San Diego. They were from just a completely different scene like they were not a part of the heart they were kind of outside looking into the hardcore world but they had their own thing the music that they created was really kind of like soul influenced funk influenced jam influenced um influenced by like wire and the fall and um yeah that's a different you know, scene it's a totally different scene right <laughs> and that is also how i he's he for instance he's one of my favorite records is um uh, plastic Ono Band, John Lennon, his first solo record. It's one of my favorite records. Mike was the person who played me. I mean, before that, I knew. Of course, he knew all the Beatles and right. all that kind of stuff. But you know, unless you kind of pay attention, exactly to keep going, you don't really think about diving into the solo. You know, no. So there was a whole era of music that I was just exposed to from Mike and Hash, and those guys just really, really. I feel like I just need to like thank them for the entirety of my life of just what they exposed me to back in those days because I feel like they got me out of they got me out of a very narrow narrow window of music um that i had discovered you know because turns out like you know of course john Lennon was massive but those records kind of went unnoticed and those were the kind of records that like it's kind of equivalent to like you know what we were doing at that time period like bands like wire and you know um the fall and uh those bands joy division um you know the cure i don't know like obviously they, they became massive but like um they started in this small little circuit you know of, of doing things you know um and so it was kind of nice to, to be exposed to this whole world of music that was just beyond the um the kind of like I don't want to call it superficial, but just kind of like what was cool to be listening to in the in the moment, you know. And then they just exposed me to this whole world of.
2: Here's this just, other thing
1: going on. Yeah, Turn, this whole yeah. other thing, you know.
2: That's so cool. First, I like
1: really listening to like The Stooges or like listening to. When someone's um,
2: has to sit you down and yeah, do it. Yeah,
1: because you don't. I mean, back then you didn't discover those things. Like, and, and still actually, like, I have this, um, this guy that works with me sometimes. He's 23, 24. And, like the stuff that he does not know blows my mind. I'm just like, wow. He came up in, like, the whole digital world, you know? Like, I was... He was three years old when I started touring, and it's just kind of, like, insane, like, what happened and, like, what he was not exposed to and what he didn't discover, even though, like, there's so much discovery to be had now. Right. But you still have... It's still... It's different. I feel like you don't catch things because there's an overset, like an over oversharing of things you know there's a lot yeah, there's a lot there's to so do. much and also
2: yeah. that not saying it has to be physical right because there was mixtapes that I couldn't right. see anything I was still yeah. listening to music oh what was that ah, I don't remember what it was I never wrote yeah. it down but there's this overload of like I, I needed to see something yeah to have a connection to it, and I think you sitting with those guys and them playing you yeah. those records and maybe letting you look through stuff and yeah. just being like, "Holy shit!" Yeah,
1: it was like when I first like heard like Icantina records, you know, like like just this whole like kind of world of music that was obviously very important to current music
2: you know and then it to album leave started. it seemed like it was permeating right into that so
1: basically the, the reason why album leaf started was because that band go 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 Heart, we would just practice and basically everything was recorded straight to tape practices were just mic'd up and recorded and then furthermore edited and that's how songs were written like it was just basically it was basically live jams and we would just jam and jam and jam and that was like songs that's how songs started after practice um i would sit around and i would hang out with mike listening to music or whatever he also had a roads piano and so i was like what's that thing and then basically you know that's when i first discovered the roads and since everything was always miked up when i would be noodling and playing around on the roads he was recording me wow and that became my first record it's just basically him spontaneously tracking and recording me and being him and me like kind of laughing or you know just so oh, that's this is cool and he'd be like i tracked that i recorded that and me discovering things as i was playing too like i would just kind of like sit down and like just make spontaneous changes but still playing but like, parts back and forth so i was kind of like inadvertently making a song not really knowing it and then it'd be like oh cool and then i'd go back and like track strings like a string machine on it right wow and, like re- then oh the drums are set up so let me just put drums on it and, like and that kind of became my first album of record and then and then in um I think it was 2000 must have been 2000 after spine and sensory um an online distro company called InSound. Right. It was like basically kind of the that first. That was a big deal. It was a big deal. That was the first of oh, I can go on the internet and order a record, put in buy it via credit card or whatever it is <laughs> and, and, it and put in my address <laughs> and it shows up in my house. You know, like this is insane, you know. That's insane. It's, so that was like what InSound was. They were like the kind of the first of that. Um, and InSound started doing this thing called the tour support series, um, where they would just like basically the bands would go and make their own recordings and, you know, do the recording themselves, um, pay for it, however, whatever, whatever, what have you, you know, just like make the songs, give those songs to InSound. InSound would then press a CD, they'd press like, I think, a thousand, and they would give you 500. Um, and then they'd keep the other and sell them on the site. And that was that 500 they gave to you as tour support. So it was like tour support series. So you had this like thing thing to sell sell that would, you know, generate income that you didn't have to pay for. Um, and then there was a long series of that, um, that they had done. And throughout that, they also started, they decided to start a label, um, called Tiger style. And so we had done a, Tristezza had done a tour support, uh, release and we kind of developed this really good friendship with Ari the owner of founder of In Sound um and Tiger Style came around they kind of like they came out and they're like hey like we want to put out the next a record um great and and also we want to put out album leaf too like we like your first record like let's see what you can do so basically like that was the first time that I got like kind of like some support behind me and realized that I had two different projects that I could kind of do. And I, and it was, and they also gave me like a budget in advance. So I bought my computer, you know, I bought a mixer, I bought a mic and just figured it kind out of like figured it out. Yeah. I just figured it out how to do it. Um, and then my second record came out one day I'll be on time, which is basically kind of my first like realized actual, like, here I am making a solo record, you know? The first record was kind of like a improv kind of weird thing, but the second one was like my actual record. That record then fell in the hands of Sigur in um at a shop in Iceland. Um, they then invited me to open their tour in 2001. And then kind of from there, the kind of the success and popularity of Albany started to grow. How did they find it? it was a record shop. That's was, amazing. They, they, t- they basically told me that like they were at the store I think it was Yonsei or 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 George, um, but I think it was Yonsei. But they basically, the guy at the record shop said, "Hey, this is a cool record. You should check it out." It was a CD, and then like they went back to their studio, put it on, listened to it because they were looking for support bands, and then the, of the moment. <laughs> Who was that record store guy? I know. Yeah, I have no idea. But like,
2: how did he? Like, I'm, I love. imagining.
1: That. I know the record store in Iceland. It's, it has to be that like that one little shop, um, and. I mean, yeah, as we were like saying earlier, like you, you, unless you were in it, you can't really explain it. And, and I don't think anyone will ever
2: understand it. if you We knew it, it before the internet. Yeah. We yeah. lived in that world before it. Yeah. That's hard to, our, even my sister, who's just a couple years older, missed a little bit. Like right. it was just too old. Like her, her husband, like I have to fix, you know, the TV or I I need to like the technology stuff. Yeah. Like they're just, there's some like sweet spot right <laughs> with like didn't have it now we were in it and we know how to use it and yeah. i guess generations after us knew how to market themselves even better
1: yeah i remember i mean tristezza played a show at the middle east upstairs which i guess you were in boston so you were familiar with middle yeah. east yeah so um which Mahmoud, who's my current booking agent like and i've worked with forever booked middle east um sheikh um and it's um, funny, too. I've worked with that guy for, like, well, like 20 years. It's crazy. <laughs> um, but anyhow. Welcome like he, to the podcast. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, and uh, so we booked this show, and there was this band that played, too, wanted to open for us. And Tristezo, like, we had hit boston so many times we were like doing great we we're selling out middle east upstairs like we sold out the previous time we did it again we sold it out um Middle East upstairs which is like 150 people i don't know but still like, still it feels like oh middle my east. god everybody's there and they're like yeah you know they like it's it's, it's great. still 150 people right totally um <laughs> anyhow this band from new york wanted to play as well so they ordered uh, to open this sh- to open they did like direct support or like middle slot you know and um they only got paid, you know, hundred, uh, some, whatever X amount dollars. And that band was Interpol. And a week later, turn on the bright lights came out and boom. Um, and I remember like we had sold out, we got paid the most, we ever got paid for a show. I think it was like a thousand dollars or something like that. like, it was like, this, yeah, you know, we're like, Oh my God, this is so cool. But then to fast forward, maybe 10 years, I actually ended up playing in a, um, meeting, um, Sam fogarino and playing in a band with him um we had we had this band together uh called magnetic morning for a moment um it was it was i sam um adam franklin from swerve driver um and these two other guys and adam i'd met it was kind of another like kind of weird small like weird world where i toured with the band that adam was playing guitar for in europe oh um and then met adam um anyhow um and it's kind of funny because Sam remembers that that show, an opening for us, playing that show, getting the extra money. Like, it's just funny. Like, That's remembers cool. He remembered. Yeah, um, and then also Sam has a hardcore background because he's he's about ten years older I think than the rest of the band, um, and he came up in Florida in like in like the hardcore scene in Florida. What um, years? Probably in the nineties, early nineties. Um,
2: wow! And so that was kind of like well, a like
1: nice thing because I felt like
2: morning again. And,
1: yeah, I'm not sure. I can't remember. His, I'm sure. Band names. I probably
2: there's a bunch of those. Yeah. Wow, was he in those bands? Like, he, he was
1: in bands back, back way back when, really in, in, in Florida, like in hardcore. And I and I remember that, like, because to me, there was still like I still kind of had like a sense of I don't I want to say like I was probably all jealousy really when when I think about it. But like bands that just like like that Interpol did nothing, put out a record, boom, they blew up, right? It's like, there's no there's no sense of paying dues. There's no floors right. being slept on. There's no, like, you know, community being built. There's no, like, it's just everything kind of being handed to you. Lightning in a bottle. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, and I remember meeting Sam and thinking, like, well, at least Sam had that into him. You know, he did, He paid his dues. He did the time. He did the <laughs> stuff, you know. So that's okay. That's cool. And I love
2: that record, actually, too. That record, I think, is great. I remember getting the EP this like three song thing from right. matador before and being like oh shit
1: yeah like this is, this is, this is something you know? yeah. <laughs> um but yeah i mean turn on the bright lights i still listen to that record i think it's really great um that's cool but, but it that- did take me a long time to even myself to like let go of that mentality and like let in certain music like and be let myself actually like it and not be like such a hater of of things you know um in the last ten years, I've become a lot more lighter,
2: you know. But I did come, go through a time period where, I was or they didn't have to be that route. Yeah. It could have been another way. Yeah. Or there's there's ways to pay your dues other way. I, I right. feel the same way. Yeah, totally. The well with album leaf, I think too. The what like from the cigarros moment and like having that tour and having more people pay attention was that was that must have been an interest. I mean, yes, people were paying attention with Tristezza. There was stuff happening, but yeah. like that's another click of the dial
1: yeah I mean I remember when I made In a Safe Place um, it was after touring with Sigur in 2003 I did two tours um, one solo opening for them in Europe and then um, and then I couldn't afford to bring anybody out for that tour so then basically from that tour um, uh, Ori and Carrie and Maria um, started playing with me live while I, while I would open for them in Europe um you know carrie would come out and play a couple songs and Ori would play drums mm-hmm. and would play violin and it was this cool kind of thing and so i kind of felt like i had like all of a sudden a different incarnation or a different lineup and a different sound and a different feel from these from these people playing and then when we went back to the states the rest of my band um at the time like came out and did that tour but also like Carrie would still come out and play and Maria would still come out and play and Ori would. So it was kind of like this Mm -hmm. this, this mix. And um, at the end of that tour, they basically said like, Oh, you should come out to Iceland, you know, sometime like come out to our studio, make a record. Why not? You know? And I was just like thinking like, Oh, that's awesome. But I couldn't imagine going to like Iceland. It seems so just mysterious and magical and almost like it didn't exist back right. then. you know it's just like what how do you even get there like does a plane in- you know it's just silly thoughts you know it's 2003 um or 2001 and um so i went out and i made that record and in the during the course of making that record Tig- i was going to release it on tiger style um but then i ended up getting um and actually dave brown was managing me at that time um and we reached out to sub pop um, because Tony at sub pop, Tony K at sub pop used to also have this band or this label in LA. When he lived in LA, he had a label called waxploitation. Right. And he put out a band called strictly ballroom.
2: Yes. Which was
1: Jimmy Tamburello of postal service. And, and then I also Tristeza and strictly Ballroom created this really big friendship back in l- late nineties, I guess. Jimmy Hay from strictly ballroom started playing bass for Tristezza. I started playing in strictly ballroom. Um, Keyboards for them. And we were kind of this like kind of family, like LA, San Diego, Connect family. Like we played Whiskey a Go Go. We met at a um, KEXP. No, not KXP. I always get that. KCRW? KCR, no, not KCRW. The um KXOU. Oh, KXOU. Um, KXOU showcase. Oh, sacrilege. How do we yeah, forget KXOU? I'm sorry. Yeah. KXOU gods. <laughs> I always, because I always, they're all K something, K something. And you're like, oh, God, I mix them all up, you know. And a lot of stuff happened. A lot of um, the LA kind of that world, the beach of uh, strictly ballroom and um, Paul Fisher too. Exactly, like, yeah, KXLU like started at KXLU. Jimmy Tamborello was a um, was a had a show there, and my friend Mitch um, still has a show there. And I actually did it like a couple of years <laughs> oh, ago. Oh, really? Yeah, went down there. Um, it was kind of cool to relive it. And tristezza played there, so tristezza played um, a live you know show on, K, on KXLU, and then also um brought us onto and it's the same sense that was the same sense of like we were in San Diego we didn't have a connection to LA we went up we played at KXLU, and then boom all of a sudden like we kind of then we were playing at the smell in you know with Strictly Ballroom we met wow. Strictly ballroom and blown away they had two drummers it was crazy like it was just like and they were making this really beautiful music and it was really kind of like um like really beautiful and then they would just like blast into this like huge thing and then you know they were a really cool band and I started playing piano with them um and that was a like a mix there and so basically that long also during that time i played with like seam and with like um modest mouse and
2: um so they would just they, call before you they were
1: blow, before they were blown up they were just
2: calling say hey we need a keyboard player hey we need this
1: so, so during that time jimmy hay and i became really close friends and jimmy hay was in la and i was in san diego and he we would just like drive back he would come down and hang out with all of us. Um, I would come up here and hang out with them, you know, spend like days up here. Um, and then we just hang out. We were just all like really tight friends. Um, and so that was kind of how it was. Yeah. That's like, so show, cool. Like, you know, Jimmy, Hay did that, did Tristez's second tour with, he was the bass player for the second tour. Um,
2: that's anyhow, so cool. And yeah. then, that, so Sub-Hop sub Pop found you through Jimmy. S- so no.
1: So basically I had met Tony during that time period too. So Tony and I were good friends, um, before he was at Sub Pop, and then, um, he moved to Seattle to go to Sub Pop, and then when we would come through, Tristeza, we would actually stay at Tony's house and sleep on his floor and hang out with him. And then, um, yeah, when I was making that record in a safe place, um, I sent him what I was doing and the story behind it, and they were like, oh, I want to put it out. So then that's how sub pop that's how that that's amazing because tony was an old friend um and yeah funny
2: how it. that works out yeah totally And
1: you know that record then being on sub pop and putting out that record obviously propelled me into a much bigger you know just put way more visibility on me and um you know because i remember like touring with sigaros um 2003 doing that second tour, playing at radio city music hall, playing like all of these massive places and then going out about a month later on my own and thinking like, okay, cool. I'm going to go off that momentum. was like, still like nah, <laughs> nothing, nothing's clicking there. You know, <laughs> so,
2: I got to work. Like, I, I, yeah, I got to work still, still. still got work
1: to do, you know? And then, yeah. And then, so being on self pop definitely helped that having that promotion and that press machine and that,
2: you know, I mean, I feel like the into the blue again was the, I feel like the a lot of people, I don't know your Spotify numbers, but I feel like right. those songs connected deeper and it, having that happen on that record versus your first or right. second was, it's almost like they gave you time to cultivate. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely kind of... <laughs> I guess it started to feel
1: more of, like, falling into a sound. Right. With with, with In A Safe Place, I was still kind of discovering, like, what I was wanting to do and, you know, like, just kind of making songs that just were happening, discovering electronics, discovering programming, discovering, like, a lot of, you know. And I feel like Into the Blue Again was when I kind of fell into what I felt like was my... You know, my sound had not really. I mean, like, like my sense of melody and my sense of atmosphere, mm-hmm. my sense of like those things didn't really change. Um, but like, my, my sense of focus, I think, more so, fell into place with Into the Blue again.
2: Yeah, and I think yeah. those songs and the the I was singing more comfortable. I was older. Yeah, and you know, three I started, songs
1: had singing. Yeah, I started singing on on In a Safe Place, but I only sang one song. And and Paul from Blackheart came out and and did that with me. And Paul basically. Kicked me into gear to sing, he gave me like I don't know how many shots of vodka, and I was <laughs> really loose. And they could hear it in that take, It's On Your Way. And I'm just like, it's the first time I sang on a and it's just like, Ooh, you know, I was like, my, like really deep voice and just didn't really know what I was doing. Yeah. Paul over the top of it, and then, and yeah. But then, yeah, into the blue again was when I was like, okay, I'm going to take the lead of singing and do it myself. um And that was kind of, yeah, where I just kind of like felt was much more comfortable mm-hmm. um i knew about recording i knew about making records and i went to the studio and did it and kind of knew what i was doing and had like a you know a clear kind
2: of yeah you're comfortable you know, it was comfortable yeah i feel like that's the that's when you're gonna have the yeah. right so you're comfortable that making with
1: of, yeah there's that making of documentary for making that record too it's on oh YouTube, right yeah, which is pretty cool to kind of go back and see I it's like oh
2: yeah that's right
1: yeah so do all this kind of all this stuff and it was very focused you
2: know have you saved stuff over the years not just gear because i know you're got crazy amounts of gear but like photos or tour laminates or flyers and stuff
1: i have a photo album from my Cigaros tour tour Cigaros in 2003 um which is pretty fun to look back on um i know i have stashes of photos somewhere i have a chest that's in my garage that i i know i just put things in there and i kind of don't go back to it and i've and i'm always curious like you know to like open it up and see what's in there again um i've I mean, made I bands do like it I, yeah i don't feel like i save i have laminates and stuff like that because laminates Flyers like, i remember or... the first time i got a laminate i was like whoa this is this is big time you know <laughs> the first time i, made <laughs> I a can laminate, go anywhere <laughs> yeah or when, like japan like treats you very well and like it like and i did i do fairly well in japan i remember the first time going to japan i just it's two shows that i had a laminate japan album leaf tour it was a laminate serious like, this is cool you know like um super super funny i remember mean, when i played radio city music hall there was a specific show laminate for that oh only. of course yeah, it's really it was like like two
2: point like print it was really funny but it's still on
1: there yeah it's still on there it's like, Shh, <laughs> <Album Leaf's
2: funny." laughs> so some savings some stuff it's on a box one day you'll look at it yeah I think so.
1: My, my parents and my grandma used to like save clippings and stuff like the actual like print clippings from like early Tristez and early album lift days. Do you have those? Um, I do have those. Okay, too. good.
2: Actual print stuff.
1: Yeah. One day I'll make you scan them. Yeah, because I know that you're, that's, your, that's your
2: <laughs> yeah. you. You won't Believe the bands that I've made go through their stuff. I've got Jimmy World to go through their stuff. Um, do you remember a photographer, Paul Drake? Paul Drake was my tour manager. And I mean, he was
1: tour managing out the drive during their up, you know, it he has like, amazing photos era.
2: of all those guys. Yeah. And of course, you know, so I'm like, how have you not had a book? And I just think like those yeah. people, like I talked earlier about like, not, not the musicians, but like yeah. the tour manager or yeah. like those people, he taught so many bands. His,
1: well, his era too. Like he started in like the Christie front drive era, like that whole, he was, he was early, early Denver, you know? Yeah. And took off and, yeah i remember he was our tristezus tour manager through in europe and drive yeah drive drove us tour us when he was in prague um which stayed
2: at his house and he yeah he was i mean he's he's awesome he's such a sweetheart yeah you know the the connections like that and right it's almost like still reaping rewards now yeah for your bands right totally and for everything you're doing and i wanted to mention the eastern glow recordings yes well, you started that to re reissue stuff that hadn't been out or that was discontinued. Um, it's more stuff that was discontinued and out of print.
1: Um, and also uh, being able to, I guess being able to do it too. So that was kind of the thing too. Cause I, f- I remember, so after my sub pop, um, contract was up and I was kind of, and, and I did an EP it was forward, forward return EP um, and also, uh, my first soundtrack was Toys Distraction. And I wanted to just put those out. And so I, I literally just pressed CDs. And so that was kind of the beginning of Eastern Glow. but I wasn't named that or thought of. Um, I think the first official release was maybe when I got the rights for Seal Beach, which Paul Fisher put out, um, Paul and Dave, on Holiday Mat or Better Looking. Um, and when he gave me the rights back for that... I like pressed it up on vinyl because it had never been pressed on vinyl. So I was like, oh, cool. I'll, I can do that. And then pressed up "Forward return on vinyl, um, did a seven inch, um, when I was kind of going to just, before I went with relapse, I was kind of, um, just in line to just do it myself. Um, and so we pressed up a seven inch to, cause I kind of had that mentality too. It was like, oh, seven inch nobody cares about seven inches anymore i don't think and nobody really probably seeks out to buy them but for me this is just like a it's a staple in my yeah like in my vinyl upbringing and just my discovery of things was like getting somebody seven inch you know um so i felt like pushing putting a seven inch out making an exclusive like vinyl only Mm -hmm. song um which i think is still exclusively vinyl only um but yeah and then starting to think about it more where like i got the you know one day I'll be on time and, um, Orchestrator rise of fall. We're just straight up out of, out of print. They were just gone. And, and then I think somebody said that they saw it on the wall at Amoeba for like $175. And I was like, that's ridiculous <laughs> right like i want to put i want to redo that yeah and like have it be accessible and like i just don't i don't know i mean i know that there's a lot of the vinyl hungry in the no lot it's fucked up do.
2: i don't care yeah. that it's this color and there's only four i want right. to just play it
1: yeah i want to i want the music i don't you know like people do like i and i know that it's like i was a part of this uh this 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 guy has this vinyl channel called too many records and um he literally does have too many records. He just has, a, you know, he's, it's insane what he has. Um, but his music taste is also very across the board. Like he has right. like, all of Pearl Jam's records, but then he has like all of like FX twins records, you know? So his, his, his taste is across the board. Um, but he's all about the variance. He's all about the, like this, and he's all about digging out and finding this like particular press and doing wow. this whole thing. And then like, um, and I mean, yeah, there's something to be said for that for sure. Um, but for me yeah i want the music and i just want the music to be accessible that's why i was never opposed to streaming or to napster or to any of those things i was always a like i would rather people have have
2: it and be able to hear it than cuz they're going to be more up to go see you yeah. go we'll buy come, the t-shirt
1: yeah. okay, exactly that was my that was always my statement during the napster years was like can't well, download a t-shirt yeah and there was like you know i was thinking the first time that like this couple that was in their 60s came to my show at fireside bowl you know, like if you've That's been to the fire amazing. cycle, well, it's a dump. Yes, it's a cycle. dump. It's like, it's a shitty sound system. It's a dumpy room. The bowling out And they broken. came because of Napster? They came because of Napster. And they stuck around. They waited. They said hi. And they wanted to be like, hey, we discovered you on Napster. And I was like, there they are with their like CD and their t-shirts that they bought. And like, and I was just like, that is fucking awesome. There was, there is a value to that. Yeah, there is a value to that. That's more important than being like, fuck you, pay me. Or like, you know. Right. Which, course pay me too
2: you know like you're still putting out art but and you discovery. Make music
1: but discovering like having it there you know
2: making it easy yeah we make it hard right we meaning music we make it hard right it's not it shouldn't be that hard yeah it should not be <laughs> yeah uh i want to get quickly get into the soundtrack stuff because mm-hmm. i think that's really interesting and a natural progression almost from tristezza and album leaf because right. you can hear those as movies right and tv yeah
1: which is kind of how it's, it's how it started. I think that record in a safe place was also the kind of the that entire record was used on the TV show The OC. Oh right, right, every right. Every single song, except for Over the Pond, probably. Um, but every song, and also one of the songs ended up on the soundtrack for the for the OC. Um, so there was like a time period where, like, I don't even think I put it together that films could be scored by somebody like me. Really? Yeah, I never put it together it never really made sense to me. Like I, I was, I had a lot of success in the licensing and my songs being used for sync. Um, but never really thought about scoring. It just, it just didn't click. You know, I just didn't think that like, right. You know, I I wasn't familiar even in those years. Like I wasn't familiar with like who Hans Zimmer was or who like, um, I think I knew who Danny Elfman was for sure, but I didn't, but also to that, I felt like, Oh, that's like, you know, Danny Elfman from Oingo Boingo and he just kind of makes, you know, they're like that kind of thing. And yeah. I love Pee-wee's, you know, I love I love all Tim Burton like and it kind of felt like a a pair, but I didn't really put it together that it's like, oh no, he's actually scoring and putting, you know, anyhow. I mean, that was kind of like my my mentality and 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 outlook of it. Um and then like 2004 until I mean, 2009 really. Um I just had a lot of like, and I still do kind of a fair amount of like licensing and sync usage and, and it's, and it's um, pretty steady. Um, but in 2009, I played this show in at the launch pad in Albuquerque. Um, and this guy who uh, plays in a band called Bellini, which is a band from Sicily that Damon Che used to play drums for. Um, but these, these two, this Augustino and Giovanni um, they're from, uh, Sicily, and they basically have this band, um, and any sh- short story long, basically, um, the bass player for that band was like, was that they had gotten added to the bill of our album leaf show at the launch pad. And, um, the bass player for that band struck conversation with me, basically like on our connection with the, he plays in Bellini and, I mm-hmm. knew them. and, um, when I was in Blackheart we did shows, a lot of shows with Augustino and Giovanni and, and Sicily and stuff like that. Um, and basically they, he said, Hey, my friend of mine made this documentary. It's really heavy. It's really this, you know, kind of beautiful story. She followed this girl with this really like, um, you know, uh, rare syndrome. Um, and she used a lot of your music in the soundtrack. She wanted you to see it and see if it was cool for you to, to, to let her use your music. And I was like, Oh, sure. Totally. And then like gave me the DVD of the, of the film i sat in the van driving cross-country watching it you know with like my cd dvd drive like being yeah, shaking everything sure. like and i'm like ah, i gotta start over you with know, whatever <laughs> um but like watched it and um um i think it's probably my wife or my manager or somebody of that time that she's like you, sh- you maybe you should just score it like just offer to score it so i didn't i was like okay cool and i know she didn't have any money so i was like look can i just what about if I just score it? I'll just score it for free. Like, how about that? You know, I, you're going to learn something at the same time. Yeah. And so I had nothing going on and that's basically how that happened. So then that happened. Um, I scored it and it was kind of like a lot of like, you know, I was like doing not sound likes, but obviously like following more of what she had laid in there temp wise, you know, Mm -hmm. didn't really have my own voice. Um, which is kind of why it turned into something that I could kind of release as a record because there is like, actual songs right. you know because i was following other kind of like guides of temp music that was being used um and then my wife is in film and in, and is a filmmaker and documentary filmmaker and she has you know a lot of friends and a lot of connections in the documentary world so she kind of like was like hey you should look at my husband he's like starting to that's out. awesome and like basically kind of she like set me down the path of um somebody was looking for a score for their film uh, is this one, uh, the second film I did was called Wonder Woman um, Untold Story of Superheroines um, and it was a film about Wonder Woman how she represents you know the growth of feminism and, and you know through the years mm-hmm. and how she was as a you know one of the only female action heroes um, dating back to the 30s um, and how her role changed um, you know through the years of the growth of the feminist movement and just, you know, equality and everything and how, so that was that, that film and the filmmaker needed a um, composer. And so my wife did that connection. And um, so I scored that film. And that was also along the lines of like, she was a little more like she had a heart song and she wanted it to sound like heart. So I made a sound like of heart, you know, like that was that kind of thing where I was like doing a right. lot of like, you know, um, but also kind of slowly discovering my scoring voice within that film a little bit. Um, And then the producer for that film was a friend of another film that was being, it's just, and it's kind of spiraled that way, you know, turns out like the narrative films that I've scored um, now, um, I've done three with these filmmakers, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Justin was actually hired by Dave Brown, my old manager, to film me making Into the Blue Again, which is that that video that exists was shot by this Guy just so he already knew you and he knew me and he then years later he made his first film it was all sound design um they released it opened at tribeca um got traction was like kind of a you know a little like job indie favorite right made their second film or started to make one starting to he wrote a second film came to me and said hey i'd l- love for you to score this film and i remembered him as the guy that i knew from san diego who came out on tour with me shot you know like filmed me and like stuff like that it was a cool dude but i didn't you know i was like oh okay cool i saw his first film that he made resolution and i was just blown away wow and then i mean yeah three films later their fourth i've done three films now we have our film opening this weekend in toronto um with starring jamie dornan and anthony Mackey. so it's like what's, real, the, what's that actors, one called synchronic um you know and it's just like here we are we've just like grown together in that world and I still get kind of work based off films that I've done with them and I've kind of established my own that's amazing kind of thing I fell into it really and but it was also very natural for me to do
2: but the approach know? of it was the same as you driving to Michigan right <laughs> exactly <laughs> totally you met the, you're meeting the people and then yeah. by the time you get there it's just that's the that's amazing yeah and falling into that, and then being able to the do that type of music, and being able to be expressive that way. Yeah.
1: And now I've done six films in the last year. two of, Two of those were my wife's, um, and then four others. And wow. I was back to back to back to back, and it's it, the the juggling of album leaf and scoring is is a little tough. But it's also you know I'm I don't know I'm I'm a father. I'm older. I don't have as much interest in spending half my life on tour anymore and it's it's kind of it's making sense you know (laughs) but i do want to continue album leaf and i do want to like find ways to do things and make them make it really special and make it more of an experience rather than just coming in and seeing an album leaf show you know like i want it to be something behind it you know something and then
2: the visuals too which i know so what so is that what's next kind of juggling the scoring because that's turning into a beast on yeah. on, on top yeah, of the album leaf
1: yeah i mean that's kind of you know i i have things that i want to do and release uh, you know with album leaf and i also want you know the uh, this year alone we're starting uh a project of basically working with modern current artists that i truly love and respect uh, the music that they're making and having them kind of re-look at that record in a safe place and having them start new versions of those songs and working together to kind of recreate that record in a cool way because i do want to celebrate that record um but at the same time i personally am not really a fan of the go out and play the record front to back thing you know i know that fans probably appreciate that but for me like, I just want to keep it more interesting and more exciting personally. Um, cause also we've, if you've seen album leaf in the last, you played all those songs, we play those songs. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not, you know, it's not rare that we're going to play. It's not the deep cut. It's not the deep. Yeah. We are going to play those songs, you know? So I want to be able to represent those songs in a cool way and have them be something that's new and fresh or facelifted or, or whatever it is, you know, or have somebody play somebody else's version of it or, um, just kind of create like a special happening around it rather than just here's the song here's how it was let's play it right you know? so looking at things a different way yeah i remember i played the atp i played at a, a atp festival in um in uh england in 2015 and they and that was the first time they i was asked to play in a safe place um and also max richter was asked to play blue notebooks and the No Twist was asked to play Neon Golden, which is one of my favorite records of all time. And when I saw the way that they performed Neon Golden, it just, that's I think when something clicked for me because they didn't play it in sequence. Songs were like just like improvised and like jammed on and everything, and you could tell that they were playing the record, but it was just they went in so many different places. It was just like they were enjoying it. It was a performance. It was like you know they put together a lot of thought and like put together this whole thing and and perform that record in a way that was like i want a recording of that as well as being able to put the record on and listen to that you know so that kind of changed my perspective of of how to do something like that and in wanting to do something different